And good afternoon. KPFK and your radio, 90.7 FM, all over Southern California. Out of Santa Barbara County, 98.7 FM, and of course, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Time for Intervision now till 2 o'clock this afternoon. Intervision is a program about spirituality, about health, about consciousness, a program about identity and motive, philosophy, uh, comparative religion, uh, those kinds of things. Who are you and what are you for? That's the way I like to say it. And why do we think the thoughts we think? Why do we feel the way we feel and do the crazy things we do? I, you know, I was going through my computer this week. You ought to try that sometime. Just go look at old files you haven't seen in years. And I found an essay that I halfway wrote. I never did finish it, and it must have been five or six years old. And I titled it On Second Thought. And I could tell from reading it that even though I never did finish it, at the time I was inspired by the whole idea that we could have a second thought, that a thought could be interrupted by a thought. Think about it. <laughs> on second thought. You know, you're thinking, and then suddenly you go, wait a minute, on second thought? Well, if we are, in fact, as most people believe, our thought stream, then where'd that other one come from? And uh, that's a kind of topic that we talk about. You know, beyond our thoughts and feelings, there's something deeper. There's an essence. That's really what unifies at least the Friday edition of Intervision, that's what we like to talk about. Self-realization, the nature of consciousness and conscience and those types of things. Today, I have a guest at the top of the show, and then I'm going to take a topic that we're going to discuss a little bit and go a little deeper with it, and it's simply the idea of freedom. What is freedom? First, as uh, civil liberty uh, the kinds of freedoms that are uh, expressed in first the Declaration of Independence and then our Constitution and somewhat as an afterthought, the Bill of Rights, civil rights, human rights, inalienable or unalienable rights, that kind of freedom, but then a deeper freedom. As I said, when you begin to mindfully understand that you are more than that thought stream that goes racing through your brain, there's another kind of freedom available. Um, the freedom of responsibility. And as we, as, as we move deeper into the program, we're going to explore that whole topic. Uh, a deeper quality of freedom, perhaps, than you know. And, uh, you know, there's a wonderful book that I bet a lot of folks in the audience are familiar with by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Do you know that book? you familiar with it? It's from the 50s. This fellow was a, uh, he's passed over now. He was a uh, uh, psychotherapist, I guess you would say, maybe a psychiatrist even, and uh, a German fellow and a uh, survivor of the Nazi concentration camps in World War II. And in this book that he wrote after surviving that horrific experience that so many others did not, he invented a kind of psychotherapy called logotherapy and, and wrote this classic book, 
a man's search for meaning, and he says the the one thing that the Nazis could not take away from the prisoners was their freedom to think for themselves. Well, I'd like to argue the point, because I think a lot of us have lost or perhaps never really developed the freedom to think for ourselves. I think freedom is under assault in many, many ways, but that's part of what I want to talk about today. First, let me bring on board uh, a man I've known for uh, more years than I have fingers and toes to count. Uh, you know him, too. He's the uh, former editor of the magazine, The Realist, and currently the editor of The Realist in its uh, present incarnation or iteration. One of the founding members of the Yippies and uh, an all-around uh, troublemaker and good guy, Paul Krasner. Hello, Paul. But on second thought, uh, the realist uh, last issue was in 2001, so I'm I'm not I'm doing I'm doing the same stuff now, but in other formats. Oh, I thought you still were doing the newsletter version. I did that, but that ended in in, in uh, 2001. Well, all things must pass. As uh... oh, that's another second thought. When you referred to Frankel as as passing uh, uh, be, passing over instead of passing away. Uh, because it sounds like he was neglected. He was passed over. <laughs> or passed through. All right, or onward. It was uh, nice to hear you on uh, another radio station a week ago. You were on uh, Bree Walker's program in Air America, and it reminded me that you and I had not talked in a long time, and you have an event coming up in Santa Monica with a couple other stand-up guys, and... Uh, they, like you, are sort of politically oriented. I know Rick Overton, who used to do a show here on KPFK, is going to be with you. And I thought, well, let's ring up Paul. So I appreciate you spending some time with us today. It's my pleasure, as, as always. You know, the uh, it's not just me. It's, it's uh, myself, Rick Overton, and uh, Charlie Hill, who is the only uh, Native American uh, comedian that I know of, and Larry Hankin, who I knew uh, from several decades ago uh, when he was on the committee in San Francisco, and um, Gary Gordon, who's uh, organizing the whole event. And it's a benefit for uh, the uh, celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Peace and Freedom Party. You know, it's amazing to me that it goes back to 1967, the summer of love. I don't think of Peace and Freedom as a political party, the Peace and Freedom Party being quite that old. Yeah, you know, I was just on a panel of, uh, of uh, in San Francisco about with Wavy Gravy and your uh, radio colleague Scoop Nisker. Oh yeah. Uh, and David Smith, who was the doctor who founded the Hate Free Clinic, and uh, and Dr. Smith was, uh, a, you know, he was kind of um, ambidextrous um, or amphibious or ambivalent. <laughs> pick a, pick, pick a, a word beginning with A, any word. All right. And uh, about about the counterculture, you know, and and I accused him of saying that the hippies had no exit strategy. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things I liked about the the yippies that uh, you and I guess Abby Hoffman and and was Jerry Rubin in on the yippie movement, uh, if I can even call it a movement. What I loved about it, and still today, Paul, your whole brand of comedy is beyond irreverent. It's like, um, in many ways, it strikes me as um, a kind of a, a a parallel in many ways 
in a topsy-turvy looking glass Alice in Wonderland kind of way to the insanity of uh, the Republican administration that we're suffering through and that we went through with Reagan and and Nixon before that. I mean, uh, as long as I live, I'll never forget the uh, the day y'all got together to levitate the Pentagon. Well, you know, uh, they gave us a permit, uh, to, but but at first we wanted uh, to to raise the Pentagon twenty two feet because that was the distance uh, that was the biggest ladder that they had, so they could still stand on them and pull it back down. <laughs> but, uh, that was considerate of you. Well, you know, we were nice guys, but yeah. they but uh, they would only grant us a permit. They said for three feet. So, uh, you know, power, power trumps uh, protest sometimes. And uh, I wonder if you remember, I bet you do, the first time you and I met over at ABC and uh, you just seemed to attract trouble wherever you go. Didn't you get a ticket walking to the radio station that day? Oh, that was the very first time we met. I, I felt really bad because it would make me late. Uh, to, to be on your show, and I'm pretty responsible about that kind of thing. Right. But I, I was, um, uh, I thought I could get a bus. I, I don't drive, and I thought I could get a bus to the station, but the buses were really few and far between, so I started hitching, and, uh, and a police car stopped, and I thought, oh boy, how generous. They're going to give me a ride. <laughs> but instead, they um, cited me for, um, I remember the exact language. Uh, Wasn't it parading without a permit? Not quite. No, it was. Um, um, uh, well, first of all, you, you know, I, I didn't carry any ID at the time either, and and the policeman asked me, "Well, why not?" And I said, "Well, I know who I am," which of course was they they interpreted that as being a smart alecky right. re- retort, uh, but it was really the reason I didn't have any reason to carry ID, uh, and. But then I realized there was in the L.A. Weekly a photo. I was I was going to do a show at some theater, and the photograph that they used was one of me mooning an audience. I, 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 in those days, I was just mooning audiences, but once in every city so that it wouldn't become a comedy gimmick. And, and in fact, my daughter Holly was at one of the shows, and she and uh, she you could hear her say her to her friends, "That's my dad." Um, but uh, so I so I said, but it labeled, you know, it said this Paul Krasner mooning an audience, and so I showed it to him. I said, "Is this my? Uh, uh, how's this for an ID?" And he looked at the the picture of my bare buttocks and then at me and said, "Is this you?" And you know, a, a common expression for people who look at driver's licenses or some other form of ID. So I assured him it, it was my buttocks. And uh, I didn't have any tattoos or anything, so I guess ultimately he had to take my word for it. So then I, you know, so they gave me this ticket, and um, it, and um, and then I asked them if they could drive me to to the radio station that you were at, and they turned me down. So I was late. I finally, but there was a bus driver who saw the whole thing happening, and he waited for me. So oh. I got there not as late as I thought I would. Yeah, well, I remember that day very well, and. Uh... Again, it just strikes me that that's the kind of uh, uh, incident that you would attract, just with your energy and your irreverence for authority. And so, I haven't talked to you in a long, long time. I, I don't know that. I think uh, maybe when you last recorded one of your uh, stand-up comedy albums, uh, you were kind enough to invite us to to be in the audience that night. But that was years back. 
Was that the one where uh, Dan Castellaneta, who does the voice of Homer Simpson on The Simpsons, introduced me? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, that was an album where um, the uh, uh, the Fox TV uh, people uh, had uh, asked for seven copies of the tape before they would give permission. Uh, they want uh, to uh, you because you know uh, it was they kind of owned Homer Simpson's voice if Dan Castellaneta did it. Right. And um, so they had uh, one to seven copies because they had seven attorneys, Sneezy, <laughs> Dopey, Doc, and uh, Bashful, and the others. And, um, and, and they refused permission because I had, uh, they just saw that the contents of the, of the album would be about um, terrorism and, and other things which, which they didn't want to be associated with. And um, so, so the album went out without... The uh, that introduction, but uh, I posted it on my website, and um, that got I think fifty eight thousand hits, which was more than uh, any amount of albums would have been sold. It's still on my website if anybody wants to hear it or, or read it. By all means, what is your website address? Uh, oh, it's it's paulkrasner dot com. Okay, that's not with, Paul Kantner. That's Paul Krasner. No, but in the introduction. Dan Castellaneta kept referring to me as Paul Kantner, and he said, and now let's have a big hand for, 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 for Paul Krasner, I mean Paul Kantner, who is, I hope he opens with Crown of Creation. Yeah, there you go. And this was all in Homer Simpson's voice, and he, Dan was sitting to the side so that uh, people couldn't see him, and they would only hear the voice of Homer Simpson, and, and the image they would have in their mind was that blustery cartoon character rather than an actual human being. You know, I ran into you once. I don't know if you'll remember this. In fact, I'm amazed sometimes that I remember as much as I do about these days. But uh, we were in a workshop together. Um, my God, it was in Pasadena, and it's got to be, again, I had no idea you were going to be there. But it was a human potential or personal development kind of workshop. And I was surprised to see you there again you know the realist for me i gotta tell you paul and i think i speak for tens of thousands of young women and men in in the mid to late 60s was uh really the only vehicle where i could learn about cia and and black box operation and plans to assassinate foreign leaders and what was really going on what were our true interests in south vietnam and I'm forever indebted to you for the work that you did, especially back in those days. Oh, well, I appreciate that. You know, that was before the Internet. I think the Internet, in a certain sense, has has, uh, has lived up to that slogan that uh, uh, there's freedom of the press if uh, if you have a printing press. Right. So printing press concept is, is, is becoming outmoded, but uh, in effect, uh, the World Wide Web is a printing press for anybody who can afford a computer. Uh, and and online services and so uh y- y- you know i felt that my 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 real goal ultimately was to put myself out of business to to you know to liberate taboos by example uh and um and in a sense that's what what happened you know it was that that feeling of let a thousand realists bloom and 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 now it's millions yeah. you know i mean there are some bloggers who will just talk about what kind of shoes they just bought, but uh, that's the risk of democracy. 
Well, it is very democratic, and uh, the idea that for a week's pay you can buy a computer that plugs into every other computer in the world and that essentially all information is available, not quite, but to a large degree. I'm always uh, uh, find it odd that people complain then in some situations that they don't know what to believe, and yet I'm one who says, well, you're supposed to think for yourself, read a lot of information from very diverse, even antagonistic sources, and make up your own mind. But it seems Americans have sort of lost that. They're looking for the one right news source, and they're going to stick with that no matter what. And I never labeled an article, uh, whether it was investigative journalism or uh, satirical truth, uh, satirical extension of the truth. And, and so that did confuse readers, but I just didn't want to... Uh, deprive them of the pleasure of discerning for themselves whether something was true or not, because it really made, you know, hopefully it would uh, uh, make them look at the L.A. Times through that same prism. Right, exactly. And truth can be stranger than fiction. I mean, whoever would have imagined. We thought we were in in deep with Reagan, and uh, the bombing starts in five minutes and limited nuclear war. Whoever thought, my God, that... It would be torture and rendering and spying on, well, they've always spied on Americans, but um, to be even up front about it, to brag about spying on Americans. And, and uh, again, in your position as uh, uh, one who is a, a social activist, a political activist, a journalist, and a comedian, a satirist, in the great traditions of Lenny Bruce and, I guess, Mort Saul and a handful of others, um, what do you make of it? I mean, it must be a wonderful and a horrible time for you. Oh, well, it's horrible because of all the sadness and misery and horror, uh, unending, it seems, uh, that it's going uh, to increase. Uh, there's that. So it's a challenge to, to, to be personally happy in the midst of, of that uh, kind of insanity and cruelty. Um, but as a satirist, it's also a challenge to, uh, you know, for, for years now, reality has been nipping at the heels of satire and then everybody has moments for when it, it passed across the line for tom lehrer it was when uh, henry kissinger got a peace prize uh another for others it was when fidel castro offered to uh monitor the american elections <laughs> uh it's happened continuously for me i think the latest was when um not a comedian but an earnest uh creationist uh, said that there was a pair of dinosaurs on Noah's Ark. You know, I wish I had made that up. But not only did he say that, but there's a museum now showing dinosaurs with a saddle on their back, so implying that that the the cavemen used to ride them. I heard Bill Maher say that the other night. Uh, Again, I didn't know whether to believe him or not, but we're in a world where we've got this president and vice president and all of these... uh, Yes, men around them, uh, many of them teenagers, it seems, uh, with questionable degrees from questionable universities. And uh, again, it's hard to know where George Bush leaves off and John Stewart picks up, or Paul Krasner picks up. The, the satire and reality, as you say, are all coming together. Well, you know, but there's one thing I haven't forgiven John Stewart for uh, at, at a certain point where, you know, he was making fun of George Bush every week, but at one point, during an interview, he said that uh, maybe he would change his mind if he just sat down and had a beer with Bush. And I thought, um, gee, that 
you know, uh, that doesn't, uh, that wouldn't be enough to to compensate for 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 the harm he's done, not just to this country, but to the globe. And, and you know, it's not just one man; it filters down. It filters down to all the people who the uh, Senate and Congress who who gave him permission to invade Iraq, and then for the people who. Uh, uh, who worked for the administration in their propaganda division, and then for the American people who were so brainwashed, uh, you know, that if the government told them that Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden had gotten secretly married in Massachusetts <laughs> and, and then uh, adopted a Chinese baby, uh, we would have believed it. Well, I don't think there's enough beer in the world to get me to sit down with... Uh... Bush or Cheney, I, I, I would not even want to be in the same room with these guys, I don't think. Um, I don't believe for a minute that these guys are simply incompetent. They are incompetent. I don't think that they're simply uh, uh, shallow-minded. I know they're also shallow-minded as well as incompetent, but I also know evil when I see it, uh, dedicated to evil. And, and the, the irony is that, you know, during the Vietnam War, um, we considered the draft to be an evil thing. And now we consider the, the lack of a draft to be an evil thing because it takes up uh, uh, poor people and minorities uh, who have trouble getting jobs, uh, a certain feeling of, of uh, ironically, of security. Uh, and uh, but 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 they consciously know that if there were a draft... Uh, this administration knows there would be people out in the streets, just as there were in the 60s and 70s, and people yeah. were buttoned saying, not with my body, you don't. Yeah. But as long as there's a draft, not a draft, you know, uh, and you can compare that to a year ago when Latinos in Los Angeles uh, marched through the streets a million strong over the immigration issue. And I, I, I think that that's what the peace movement should do is hire guest marchers from Mexico to do the job <laughs> Americans don't want to do. Well, that's one of the ways a Mexican or Central or South American can accelerate, of course, the process of becoming a citizen is to serve as a non-citizen in our military adventures overseas. Seems like a cruel joke. Um, but, you know, Paul, my, uh, and let me reintroduce you for those who just may be tuning in. This is Paul Krasner with us on the phone today from his home and sequestered deep in the deserts of Southern California. Paul's going to be in town in a couple of days. Why don't you give us that information again, Paul, the, uh, the, the event on Sunday in Santa Monica? Yeah, it's at the Powerhouse Theater. Uh, starts at 6, but I think at 5, uh, there's like a reception and music. Um, Powerhouse Theater is on 2nd Street in Santa Monica, and it's going to be a group of comedians, uh, myself, uh, Rick Overton, uh, Charlie Hill, uh, Larry Hankin, all have different styles, but all uh, um, hold irreverence as their only sacred cow. <laughs> and uh, it's a benefit for uh, celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Peace and Freedom Party. And um, it's been... Uh, Produced by Gary Gordon, and um, do you know a phone number or website where people could go? They always ask for that. Oh, a phone number or a website? Well, uh, let's see. I guess I guess the not offhand. But well, I we guess. could just suggest people then use their Google 
And as, as Bush says, uh, I use the Google. I heard that, or I heard the joke of it. I still can't tell. <laughs> Powerhouse Cafe, is it? Uh, Powerhouse Theater, I think it is. Powerhouse Theater. In but, Santa and, America. you know, if they don't have a computer to check a website, uh, there's always the, the, the old-fashioned technology, the telephone. Yeah, is um, you know, you phone. mentioned before that you that you were surprised to see me at that human potential meeting. But, yeah. But I, you know, I I love to 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 uh, go to subculture meetings. You know, everything from a swingers convention to uh, a human potential movement to uh, a conspiracy convention, and um, and uh, and I've been involved in conspiracy, and I've been in, involved. In, in well, I've been accused of murder, <laughs> uh, and I've been involved in uh, the New Age, uh, but I but I could still make fun of the things I'm involved in on some level. Uh, for example, when uh, I covered in San Francisco the trial of Dan White, who was the ex-cop, right. who uh, the Twinkie defense. Yeah, I, I'm the one who uh, made that phrase up. Oh, I should have known. Well, you know, I, I've, I've added about five or six phrases to the language. He was a cop. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and he and he, it was a, really a double political assassination of right. uh, Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk, right. who was the first openly gay elected official in the country. And right. had he lived, he he was like the gay equivalent to Martin Luther King, and he would have been the first gay mayor, mayor and who knows beyond that. And um, I, uh, the the, um, the defense was was so shrewd, and the and the uh, prosecution was so flawed uh, that the although he was found guilty, uh, he got I think like a seven year sentence, which yeah. meant that um, and I looked at the ingredients uh, that when he got out of prison. Um, the Twinkie that was on his shelf would still be edible. <laughs> um, yeah, that set a precedent. Even today, they call it diminished capacity. Uh, yes, right. But he got out, I think it was after four years, and then he committed suicide because it was hard to live with that, and he was shunned by virtually everyone he met. But uh, when, when that verdict, the night, the night of the day that that verdict was, was read, and, and that low sentence, there was just rioting in the streets outside uh, City Hall in San Francisco, and I got caught in that police riot, and uh, I, I still walk, I, I walk with a cane now as a, uh, the ultimate result of that beating. Um, but I went to all kinds of doctors and healers, and I went to a New Age therapist who had me lie down on her massage table because uh, she wanted to see if I needed a, a, a brace to wear around my hip. Uh-huh. And so she had one hand on my hip, and with the other hand, she held the hand of her receptionist. And the receptionist said, yes. And I said, uh, look, I don't want to be rude, but uh, I hope you don't mind if I, if I uh, seek a second opinion, <laughs> perhaps from another receptionist. <laughs> but so, so, you know, it, it was the, the comic... Uh, um, Analyst from uh, olden days, Henry Hazlitt, who said uh, that uh, uh, it, it, it's possible to uh, make fun of the things you love and not love them any the less. And, and so, so, so that's how I feel. I, I, I approach the world with uh, conscious innocence. I think humor, satire, or really any kind of humor, is essential to life and really is a quality of love. And I think that's why humor heals as love heals. We say humor's 
uh, you know, laughter is the best medicine, that kind of thing. And if we, if we can't laugh at ourselves, then we do burn out. And activists who take themselves too seriously and don't laugh from time to time at the madness of it all, I think, uh, we're asking for burnout then. So I, I really value the role of, of you or a, or a, a Lenny Bruce, for example, or, or even Mort Saul, whose politics I never could figure out. He'd go from left to Ronald Reagan's best buddy and back to the left. And do you know Mort, by the way? Did you have you ever met him? Uh, I first met uh, Mort Saul in 1953 when I was living in New York, and he did a guest lecture at uh, the New School for Social Research. And I was inspired by his uh, satirical approach to serious issues, which right. were just not. Uh, uh, written about or talked about that you know a, a, a uh, an anthropologist from the future would have not would have thought that the worst problem was judging by TV the worst problem was when hubby brings home the boss to wifey and she's mad because it's their anniversary and he forgot it uh, and and you know I, I I wanted to try and get comic relief for for the things that I was concerned about, which was racism and sexism and um, war and nuclear testing and uh, uh, the lack of abortion rights and, and all of these things that I was concerned with, and and there was no satirical approach to them in terms of revealing a truth, which good satire does. Right. Um, and um, so... Um, religion uh, my religion became uh, humor uh, it was just it was just the way i related to the universe and mort always had the uh, rolled up newspaper under one arm yeah and and on that rolled up newspaper when he started uh, it was uh, he had written words several words to remind him of the areas that he wanted to get into and then when he performed enough and it became a matter of course for him um, he still held up the rolled up newspaper as a prop similar to his cashmere sweater as right. a prop and it was because you know he would um uh, he would be dressed in, with uh slacks and a, and a jacket a sports jacket and then he would change into his cashmere sweater uh but he was just 80 years old in, in may and so last month uh there was a, a tribute to him at the uh wadsworth theater and uh it, the, the theater was filled with people, and many, many uh, comedians, the old school and the new school, uh, performed and thanked him for being a pioneer, as he was in, in stand-up comedy. Indeed he was, and uh, a great admiration for him, though I've never met him. I've spoken with him over the phone, but we've, we haven't met. Well, I'm glad he's doing well and hanging in there. Paul, I just have a few more minutes, and I'm going to let you go. But my theme today is... Uh, Freedom, but beyond the idea of simply uh, human rights or so-called civil liberties as expressed in our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, um, but uh, even a, a deeper sense of what freedom means, personal freedom, intellectual and, and even spiritual freedom, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So why don't you... Um, since Sunday's appearance in Santa Monica at the Powerhouse Theater is a benefit for the Peace and Freedom Party, uh, give me your best take on what is for Paul Krasner freedom. Uh, what 
for me is is freedom. Well, well, first let me say freedom is to be aware enough that when you're um, uh, when you take when you get a club sandwich in a delicatessen, uh, be sure to uh, have the freedom to take the toothpicks out before you take the first bite. <laughs> and then you can get philosophical, because it's hard to think in terms of these abstractions like peace and freedom when you have a toothpick sticking in your upper palate. That sounds like experience talking. Uh, no, just, no, no, I, no, no. It, 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 it's really the freedom to uh, to have a sense of... of, um, uh, of the results of your actions. I see. So, so freedom for me is is to break through the conditioning, the brainwashing that the culture uh, uh, that is internalized by by infants at um, from the very beginning. Uh, so, for example, there are kids growing up now who will think that you always had to take your shoes off when you wanted to go f- uh, on an airplane. Um, and so, uh, so for me, uh, it's it's um, breaking through the conditioning and 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 seeing reality as much as I could to to try and be ob- as objective as I could to try and do as little rationalizing as possible. And um, so, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but uh, freedom for me uh, is. To, uh, to well, for, here's, here's an example: the the, the pedophile priests. Um, to to not have any religious obligation uh, uh, to people like Cardinal Roger Mahoney, um, but to to treat them equally, and in his case, it's aiding and abetting uh, criminal acts. And, and and so to see things as they are is is freedom for me, whether I like what I see or not. Uh, and and then that's one shoe, and then the other shoe dropping is to 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 have some kind of humorous perspective, even about uh, tragedies like uh, those that were um, uh, approved in effect by uh, Mahoney. And and so so I will come up on stage with a line like. Um, that the uh, pedophile priests had a contest among themselves because it sounded like like a really competitive thing when L.A. was better than Boston or uh, um, Maryland uh, in terms of uh, you know we had to give our, the diocese in L.A. had to give six hundred sixty million dollars uh, whereas the others had to pay less in um, amends and um, so and and that sense of competition uh, um, was. Um, an example of it took place in Coney Island uh, when there was a contest uh, where um, the predator priest who won ate 66 altar boys in only 12 minutes. <laughs> like the Nathan's Hot Dog Contest, right? Uh, that's what inspired it, yeah. And, and I just, you know, and then people continued to take their little children to the church and hand them over to the priests. I just don't get it. Even my own family, this is going on. It's like, here's another little one for you. You know, praise be to God. It's like, are you kidding? How many centuries of uh, perversion? But they dress up, like Bill Maher was saying. The pageantry is nice, if you're into that side of it. Oh sure, my my own daughter, uh, when she was uh, maybe six or seven years old, 
went with a friend to a Catholic church, and she, and, and she loved it because it was all this pageantry and costumes yeah. and... Uh, uh, Funny hats. And... Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, uh, you know, my, my theory is even that, that a child who uh, is being nursed uh, by uh, his or her mother, uh, if she's wearing a crucifix, that image uh, becomes associated with, with being nurtured. Uh, before the kid can even speak any language, and uh, and so and so, there's fear built in. Everyone I know who has been to Catholic school, you know, talks about how they were fill- they were just overloaded with fear oh, and yeah. guilt, and it's very hard to uh, to let go of that because you know, uh, uh, I mean, I think of all religions as uh, socially acceptable superstitions, and a lot of people who are, are highly intelligent still will not walk under a ladder. Or allow a black cat to pass it, or they'll start worrying if they break a mirror. Uh, you know, it's just conditioning that has not been uh, shattered yet. Well, I guess maybe they figure, you know, what if I might as well uh, uh, go through the uh, church thing, even if it's not really answering my my questions, because just in case they may be right, but. Uh, I don't know the um, the role of religion and politics in your satire and in the concern that so many of us have for this loss of consciousness, this loss of awareness. And I appreciate your answer because you're saying what I want to continue to develop today is this idea that a freedom goes beyond laws. Our freedom doesn't really come from the government. There's that phrase about inalienable, which means we're born with it. We cannot, God-given, if you will, we cannot be separated from human rights, though humans do a good job. Well, freedom of speech existed before the First Amendment. Indeed. And, uh, you know, I think even in cave-dwelling times, while the adults in the family were doing these hieroglyphic-type pictures on the inside of the cave walls, some of the young kids were out in the field, uh, uh, carving other stuff on a boulder, graffiti. Yeah, or or whatever. Some some dissenting opinion. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, it could have been. Uh, it, it was like the first underground press. Well, I hope so. <laughs> There's a great story about Buddha coming through the woods after receiving his enlightenment, and people are falling at his feet. For obviously, this is a charismatic presence that's moving down through the forests and. Somebody shouted out, are you a god? And Buddha said, no, I'm, I'm not god. And somebody said, are you a priest? And, and, uh, he said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm no priest. And someone else shouted out, well, surely you're a, a sage or a great wizard. And Buddha says, no, no, I'm, I'm no wizard. And finally somebody says, well, then who are you? And he said, I'm awake. Did you say, I'm awake? I'm awake. I like that. I yeah, like that. I do the too. feedback I get most from people who uh, 40 years ago were reading The Realist was that it woke them up. Yeah. And that's really gratifying. Um, it's high praise. Uh, it is. And and um, the, the thing is, you know, you can get smug about how super conscious you are and uh, and ignore the fact that there's another layer to peel off and then another layer after that yeah. because... Uh, uh, and each of those is a layer of subjectivity that you've internalized. Um, and um, so it, what's interesting to me, too, is when uh, I, I 
do a, a, I do blogs occasionally uh, on uh, Ariana Huffington's, uh, the Huffington Post, uh, with um, the 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 bleep holes of the week, out of out of respect to KPFK. <laughs> Thanks. Soon, you know, soon the word bleep is is going to be. Uh, it'll be the eighth dirty word that you can't say. Well. We at Pacifica, we all we know all about the dirty words that oh, everybody else can say now in commercial broadcasting. But ironically, we're the ones that, thanks to our buddy George Carlin, can't say we can't even say uh, I'm, uh, uh, you know, the, the the word for being upset uh, or angry oh, right. that I, refers I know to. That's a euphemism for. Yeah, no, but, uh, uh, you know. It's true, you know, the, the 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 real dirty word to me is chilling effect. <laughs> right. That's filthy. Well, Paul, I hope everybody that can comes to see you and uh, your buddies on Sunday night again. Uh, fill us in. It's the Powerhouse Theater in Santa Monica. That's right. Starts and, at uh, six. Uh, uh, yeah, there's like a reception at uh, starting at six, and then and then the uh, performances begin at seven. And it's going to be you and Rick Overton and uh, who else? Uh, uh, Ch- uh, Charlie Hill, who, uh, as far as I know, is the first, uh, um, not the first, but the only one that, that really has, you know, been on a Tonight Show and several others, the uh, Native American comedian. Right. And Larry Hankin, who uh, is, um, who does a great impression of Osama bin Laden, although there's not much demand for it. <laughs> I think Bush does a pretty good impression of Osama. Uh, we'll see you Sunday night in Santa Monica, and give our love to Nancy, and thanks for being with us in Intervision. Okay, thank you for inviting me and for bribing me. Uh, <laughs> of course, buddy. Take care. Take care. Have fun, Michael. Thanks. Uh, Paul Krasner, not Paul Cantor, Paul Krasner, uh, founder of The Realist and uh, one of the founders of The Yippies and and uh, a satirist in his own right. Really funny guy. Was a, a great worldview, I think, and... That's what I want to talk about with the time we have left. And if you want to chime in and join us, and if you've been listening here, 818-985-5735-985-KPFK in the 818 area code. Yeah, I want to argue today with this concept of freedom, that it goes beyond liberty in the conventional sense. I'm afraid far too many of us are under the impression And I know why we've been trained, you know, educated, enculturated to believe that our freedom is granted to us by the government. How many times do you suppose you've heard in your life that uh, our armed forces are fighting for your freedom? You see, Uh, no, they're not. (laughs) No, they're not. Uh, There may be instances where... Uh, there's a great deal at stake in a war, um, and I won't even argue today about uh, the era of good wars, or if there is such a thing as a good war. I think philosophers like Thomas Aquinas is very well known for defining the five key points of a good war, but uh, Bush and Cheney and and uh, Nixon, Johnson in uh, Vietnam, and John Kennedy for that matter too, uh, those wars would not have fit the prescribed conditions of a good war, according to Thomas Aquinas or other philosophers. And so freedom doesn't really come from government. In fact, uh, in the uh, 
Declaration of Independence, the reference is made to inalienable or unalienable. Both words are correct. And alien is a word you hear a lot now, right? In the 50s, aliens were people from other planets. Now they're people from the other side of that invisible pretend line that the Republicans are building a 700-mile fence on a 2,100-mile border. Now that's some good thinking. That's really bright. But that line doesn't exist except in the minds of human beings. And uh, again, the, the freedom that's being sought when people come to America is opportunity, an opportunity that is in many cases denied them in their own country, largely because of American foreign policy. So it's ironic that we hold ourselves out as the chief purveyors of freedom when uh, we deny freedom to so many, even here, uh, fellow Americans uh, in our own hemisphere. So I want to suggest that ultimately freedom comes from responsibility, that, again, to uh, invoke the name of Viktor Frankl in that wonderful book about man's search for meaning, I would even argue uh, with him a little bit as much as I respect him, a remarkable man, a major contribution. But his statement that the one thing that the Nazis could not take away from the prisoners uh, in the uh, concentration camps was uh, their ability to think for themselves. I mean, to a large extent, dignity could be stripped away and and, uh, respect could be stolen and, you know, the use of fear to intimidate and terrorize people. But Frankl was really interested in uh, the people that just never lost their spirit, who at the worst of times would get half a crust of bread and find somebody to share it with, that that small group of, of, of individuals who never lost their freedom because they were in charge of their thoughts. Um my argument is that uh, even that capacity to think for yourself is being eroded. As uh, as Paul says, who's going to raise hell if uh, you grew up in an era where you always had to take off your shoes to get on the airplane? And, well, gosh, just everybody knows that there are these terrorists that are out to get us. And, and well, where do they live? Oh, they're all over the world. Well, how many of them are there? Oh, there's millions. No, in fact, there's a couple of dozen. You know, Americans are such uh, sissies in this regard. It just every place else in the world where there's terrorism, they call the cops. In the United States. Uh, I, you know, I think the Bloods and the Crips could handle Al-Qaeda, and I'm serious. I'm serious. I don't think Al-Qaeda would want to tangle with the brothers on the South Side at all. And uh, this idea that there are these hundreds of thousands of terrorists and this perpetual global war on terror, and we got to get them over there before they invade America and their invincible... Al-Qaeda battleships and the Al-Qaeda submarines and the intercontinental ballistic Al-Qaeda missiles. And come on, it, it's, it's uh, a few hundred guys. 
that are taking advantage of the anger at the United States and the Muslim world to recruit a lot of sympathizers, young kids that, just like the gang kids in America, don't see a future, don't see any hope. They've had their freedom taken away, their ability to really think for themselves and believe that they can dream dreams and and then attain those dreams. And uh, so here's the way I want to put it to you. I want to use a word... I want to use the word responsibility today to to impress upon you where freedom really lies. It lies in your ability to be responsible, your acceptance of responsibility. But it's got to be parsed just a little bit. We've got to look at every event in this sense as having three parts. The part of an event that is done to you will call the stimulus. For this, you may not be responsible. I know in metaphysics there's an idea that you create every situation that you're in. That's a naive overreach. You may contribute metaphysically to every situation you're in, but get over it. You're not living in a vacuum. You're in an ocean <laughs> of consciousness all of which is magnetic and co-creating. Yes, you may contribute to every situation, but that doesn't mean you caused it, right? Be careful of the, you know, metaphysics 101 naivete about you're not that powerful. And so maybe you did create the situation you're in. Maybe you contributed to it. Gosh, who knows? Maybe you can from time to time be a victim of a situation you find yourself in. And so the stimulus part of this equation, the part that's done to you, you may be totally responsible for or unresponsible for or some degree of responsibility. And that's as far as most people go, but there's more than just what's done to you. Life is more than what happens to you. There are two more aspects. There's how you look at it, your perception, your point of view, Hollywood POV, the Hollywood uh, idea of perception, your perspective, your attitude, and then thirdly, your response. And I don't mean a knee-jerk reaction. I mean a conscious, uh, well-chosen, realized option or choice that we'll call a response. And so when they talk about being responsible, I... I'd like to suggest, give you something to chew on here, something to to think about in terms of where is my freedom really? Could George Bush really declare martial law, suspend the next election, and take away my freedom? Well, hell yeah. In many ways, he's already done that. You live in a nation that starts illegal wars. You live in a nation that renders, that kidnaps people and takes them to secret foreign prisons where they're tortured. You live in a nation that tortures, that spies on its own people, that abandons poor people in New Orleans. I bet the people in St. Paul and Minneapolis get much better service from FEMA than the people of New Orleans. Fewer people of color in Minneapolis, so they get lots of attention up there. Um, 
And I can go on and on with the crimes of this administration, and I can easily include the Democrats in all of this. I'm not being partisan at all. But beyond your government and beyond the specter of religion and what it does to challenge freedom in a uh, ideally libertarian society, uh, a leave-me-the-hell-alone kind of freedom, You've really got to look at taking responsibility for your attitudes, that is, your perspective, your point of view, and for what you do with what's done to you. Substituting, listen to me carefully here, substituting even-tempered, well-reasoned choices for knee-jerk reactions. You see, most people don't do that. You say to somebody, why'd you do that? Hey, look at that. Why why did you do that? And if they're at all conscious and honest, they'll say, because I felt like it. In a very defensive way. And you might say, yeah, but did you ever think that you could have done this or this or this? And if they're honest, they'll say, no, I didn't think. And if I did think, what I was thinking about was merely manipulating or controlling the stimulus, what's been done to me by that guy over there, or this group, or this institution, or or, or this circumstance, or, or this situation. Are you, are, are you one of the vast majority of people that spends your life fighting against what's done to you? That's not responsibility. Responsibility is the ability, I would argue, the ability to choose a response, not in controlling what happens to you, but in how you look at it and what you choose to do with it. And there is freedom. And there is freedom. And if we focus as activists or as apathetic people that just want to drive the Hummer and get eight miles a gallon and and just, you know... Total self-interest, even when it comes to religion. How much of religion is self-interest? Well, (laughs) I believe in my Savior. I got my ticket to the head of the line. The hell with you guys. I got mine. (laughs) That's religion. Uh, What about bringing heaven to earth? What about, uh, you know, ministering to the poor? And uh, that what you do to the least of my brethren you do to me, and that kind of thing. Uh, somehow that's missing from what's being held out as organized religion. So I'd like you to ponder this. And uh looks like we don't really have any calls on this today, so maybe we'll do it in the future again. It's, to me, a very important concept. Read Viktor Frankl's book, if you've never read it, Man's Search for Meaning. And uh ponder this idea that ultimately... The freedom that's being eroded, that's being usurped, that's being taken away from you right now is uh, the freedom to think for yourself. As long as you're busy fighting against circumstances, then you're going to end up uh, scraping and clawing your way through uh, a minefield. You can stand up and move much more elegantly. You can waltz through this situation and still be engaged and involved. In fact, even more engaged and and more involved than those who struggle against the stimulus. And I'm talking about taking responsibility not for what's done to you, 
but for how you look at it, your attitude. Make some choices. How many different ways can I frame this? How many different attitudes, how many different ways can I look at it? And which is in my best interest, and then go further and say, and which point of view or attitude or belief system is for the greater good of all concerned? And then the third part, same kind of thing. I have choices in my response. Before I act, I could think, there is a crazy idea. I could take a breath, I could sit down and say, how many ways can I look at this, and how many ways can I respond and make choices in those two areas that are in your best interest, and if you're so inclined, and hopefully you are, the best choices and attitude and response for all concerned. And then initiate, don't react, initiate those responses. And uh, give that a little thought. I think that goes a little deeper into the philosophy of what freedom really is. And again, I hope you can go see Paul and Rick and the other guys and help that benefit for the Peace and Freedom Party Sunday night in Santa Monica at the Powerhouse Theater. I want to thank Paul Krasner for being with us by telephone on Intervision and KPFK this afternoon. And I want to thank uh, D'Angelo and uh, Brooks for uh, producing and screening the program. Oh, we do have a number. We finally got the number for that benefit. Sunday night, 6 o'clock at the Powerhouse Theater. Here you go. It's a 310 number, of course, 568-9622. More information on Sunday night's benefit, the Powerhouse Theater in Santa Monica, 6 o'clock. Benefit for the Peace and Freedom Party, 310-568-9622. Thanks to you for listening, and uh, hope you join us every Friday at 1 o'clock on 90.7 KPFK.